following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So the Exodus story, uh, the, the story of the Exodus in the second book of the Bible, it's one of the few stories in the Bible that has captured the imagination of people outside of Christian circles, outside of Jewish circles. It's got intrigue about it uh, at a popular level, in the level of mainstream culture. So Hollywood's had a few goes at bringing the Exodus story to life, not just the movie that came out over summer, but some of you may remember the 1956 Exodus movie called The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, epic movie, award-winning movie. Uh, in fact, I think we might even have a picture there, Rod, or maybe we don't, of uh, Charlton Heston. But if you, see, if you ever see that movie, I would say the highlight is uh, Moses' hair in that movie. The swished back, like permed, kind of wispy look it's like the, the main miracle that goes on in that Exodus story is that his hair stays in place while he crosses the Red Sea. It's absolutely amazing. So you've got Charlton back in the 50s bringing Moses to life. And then, of course, we had Prince of Egypt. I think that was the 90s that came out. And that's a good one for a family movie night. So Boost Kids, Primary Kids, you should be uh, nudging mum and dad to get that movie out at some stage and make a family movie night of it because it's a good movie to watch. It does bring the Exodus story to life. It's pretty faithful to the story, to the text. So grab that one, have a look at it. And then, of course, there was the movie that came out over summer, Exodus, Gods and Kings, which was controversial in some ways and depicted Moses as an Egyptian general for a lot of his life, which actually may be true. Josephus tells us that, that Moses was an Egyptian general. While he, as he grew up in, in the Egyptian court. And that may well be uh, part of historical fact. So that was an interesting movie to chew over and dialogue on as well. Even James Cameron has got in on the act, the movie maker James Cameron, and he's produced this documentary, in inverted commas, documentary, on Exodus called The Exodus Decoded, in which he claims to come up with a lot of archaeological evidence for the Exodus, these new discoveries, and brings parts of the Exodus story to life using computer-generated images. I don't know how reliable any of that is. But I think what all of this shows us is that the story of the Exodus has a grip on popular imagination, that such as the action and the drama and the intrigue and the suspense of the story, that it really is a story that's quite compelling for people right throughout our culture, and it's been told and retold and brought to life in a number of ways. But for us, the importance of the Exodus is that it is an absolutely foundational narrative in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that every year Jews celebrate the Exodus story of the Feast of Passover, remembering again what God has done in delivering His people Israel. And for us as Christians, the Exodus story is not only important in understanding the Old Testament, not just because we know more about the history of early Israel, but also, as we'll see, for understanding the New Testament, that the Exodus story brings alive the whole of the biblical story. In one sense, you could say the Exodus is the key to unlocking so much of the rest of Scripture. And this is what I want to do this morning. We're not going to spend much time in Exodus itself this morning. There's going to be plenty of time for that. We'll dive into it next week and we'll be spending a good few months in it. But what I want to do this morning to set the scene is to look at the Exodus story in the context of the whole sweeping narrative of redemptive history through the Bible. 
So we're going to look at how Exodus functions in the context of the biblical story so that when we're in the middle of it and when we're all bogged down in details of the Exodus, we will see how that is connected to a much bigger narrative that spans the entire Bible of what God is doing on earth. So this message is going to be a little bit different to usual. We're going to look at a lot of different scriptures this morning. I literally want to go from Genesis to Revelation this morning, looking at how Exodus is located within a much bigger narrative. So I've got a lot of little yellow markers in my Bible. We're going to be flicking through quite a few verses. If you've got a Bible out, you might want to do a few full finger exercises to warm up here. We're going to be thumbing through some pages. This will probably be easier if you've got the Bible on your phone or your tablet. But we're going to look at a number of scriptures. We're going to move through them fairly quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on any one of them, but to build a picture of the whole big story of which Exodus is a part. Sound okay? Fantastic. Let's get down to business. Genesis 15 is where we're going to start. One book back from Exodus, first book of the Bible. Genesis 15. Here we go. So in Genesis 15, God makes some extraordinary promises to a man named Abraham. He was actually named Abraham at the time. God enters into covenant, this binding agreement with Abraham, and makes him some incredible promises. He promises him that his descendants, his family, would be a numerous family, more numerous than the stars in the sky. He promises Abraham land, that he would lead his family into the land of Canaan. He promises him that through his offspring, blessing would come to all nations of the earth. All nations will be blessed through you. And in the midst of making that covenant with Abraham, here's what God says in Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So hundreds of years before the Exodus, hundreds of years before Moses, here is God saying to Abraham, this is what's going to happen. He paints the picture for Abraham early on, that Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. But after that time, I'm going to draw them out of that land. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to bring them into this land that God has showed Abraham, the land of Canaan. So you can imagine that story, that promise of God would have been passed down. It would have been passed down through Abraham's family, through Isaac, through Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel who go to Egypt and become slaves in Egypt. So by the time you get to the events of the Exodus, the story would have been there. The Israelites had these promises already. They knew that God was planning some kind of deliverance for his people. So there would have been real expectation around this. And so it's no surprise that when we get to the Exodus itself, there's a strong connection between God's deliverance in the Exodus and his promises to Abraham. That connection is vital. The first important connection we make is between the Exodus and God's covenant promise to Abraham. So one quick verse in Exodus itself, in Exodus chapter 2, if you want to flick over there, just a very short verse, familiar verse, Exodus 2.24 says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So here's the first thing to understand about the Exodus. God did not deliver his people because he felt sorry for them. Or he didn't just deliver his people 
because he felt sorry for them. He didn't just deliver Israel because of their suffering. He didn't just deliver Israel because he had compassion on them. He did, and they did cry out to him. But primarily, God delivers Israel because of the covenant promises that he had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. The story of the Exodus is the story of the God who remembers, who remembers his people. You know that song we sing sometimes here at Shore? Remember your children. Remember your people. Remember your promise, O God. This is the Exodus God, the God who remembers his promise to his people. This is the covenant-keeping God. That's the story of Exodus. It's the God who keeps covenant with his people for a thousand generations and more, who does not go back on his word, who fulfills his promise, who is faithful to his people. So the Exodus story must be read as the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham in Genesis. And we'll see how and why that's even more important as the story plays out. God's promised to Abraham this deliverance which is fulfilled in and through the Exodus. And so God does. He fulfills it. He brings his people out of Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness. He gives them the law. Leads them in constructing the tabernacle. And eventually he settles them in their own land, the land of Canaan, all in fulfillment to what he promised Abraham. And as later generations of Israelites look back on that event, as the story was told and retold down through the generations, Israelites looked at the Exodus as the defining event in their history, as the defining act of God's salvation. And as Christians, we could say this is the Exodus is the high point of salvation history in the Old Testament. It's the high point of God's redemptive work. It is the defining act of God's salvation in the Old Testament. And as Jewish people looked back on the Exodus, it gave them such encouragement and sustenance in the present because they looked back. The Exodus was the place where God demonstrated that he was for them, where he chose them, where he demonstrated his power was greater than any other power, where he delivered them where he entered into covenant with them as a whole nation. And they drew on that memory of the Exodus time and time and time again in their subsequent history. When things went wrong, when enemies were imminent, when life was turning against them, what Israel would do time and time again through the Old Testament is they'd go back to the Exodus in their minds and in their worship. They'd go back and they'd look again at this incredible event of salvation, because if God was faithful for us, then will he not also come through for us in the midst of this, whatever it is they're facing? Let me show you one place where this happens, in Psalm 77. This is a psalm of Israel's worship, as all the psalms are. And the psalmist here is agonizing, he's in distress, we don't know what the situation is, but he's crying out to God, he's in real trouble, trouble for his life. He's in desperate need. And after pouring out his heart and talking about his troubles and how bad a situation it is, he gets to the point of saying in verse 10, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. Verse 15, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 19, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This beautiful poetic description of the Exodus event. And the psalmist is saying, no matter how bad it gets, I can look back 
on the Exodus event. I can look back to Passover. I can look back to Exodus and I can see there the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God who will not abandon me and will not forsake me. You can already see the connections for us as Christians, can't you? That don't we do the same with the cross? Shouldn't we do the same with the cross? That no matter how bad it gets and how uncertain the future is, we look back and say, to this I will appeal. To the day when God died on a cross for me and there he demonstrated his faithfulness for me. We do the same and we should do the same with the cross of Christ. There's a deep connection there between the exodus and the cross. And so the exodus sustained the hopes and the faith of Israel. But the story of the Old Testament is really the story of Israel's increasing unfaithfulness toward God. That even though God was consistently faithful toward them, they were increasingly unfaithful, increasingly turned away to the other gods around them and became ingrained in the worship practices of other cultures to the point where God judged them. And he allowed Israel to be conquered and overrun by these other nations to have the best and brightest within Israel, deported off to Babylon, to Assyria. That's what we call the exile, the darkest time in Israel's history, the darkest hour when they felt like God had abandoned them. Their national identity was in ruins, Temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was ransacked. They'd been taken off to a, to a place outside the promised land. It was a deep time of distress for them. And yet even within the exile, you start to hear the voices of the prophets speaking hope in the midst of exile. You start to hear the voices of the prophets like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Daniel, like Ezekiel, speaking of hope beyond exile, hope beyond judgment, mercy, Beyond the exile, they speak of a homecoming for the people of God. They speak of a returning from exile. And when they speak of that hope, they speak of it in the language of the Exodus. They speak of it in Exodus words so that they begin to look at the Exodus not just as this past reality of what God has done, but as a future reality for the people of God. God's going to bring about a new kind of Exodus for us where we return from an exile back into our land. Let me show you one place where this crops up in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14. However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. Can you hear the Exodus language? Can you hear how God is saying, I've done it once, I'm going to do it again. I've brought you out of Egypt by my mighty hand, and guess what? I'm now going to bring about this new exodus where I will resettle you in your own land and draw you out of slavery to Babylon this time, slavery to Assyria this time. I'm going to settle you back in the land of Canaan. This is going to be a whole new exodus brought about again through the covenant faithfulness of God. And he did. He did exactly what he promised. 70 years passed, the political winds shifted, Israel was allowed back in their land, and many of them resettled there. But as you read the history of Israel at that point, in that period, after the exile, it all just sounds a little bit anticlimactic. They're back in their land, but a lot of them chose not to return. They're back in Israel, and yet they're still under the occupation of foreign powers. They're building the temple, and yet the temple's never filled again with the glory of God. They've got governors, but there's never a fully functioning monarchy or priesthood in the way that God intended. 
And there's this sense like, you know, what happened to this new exodus? There's there's been a physical kind of returning, but this real new exodus doesn't seem to have happened. Certainly the great promises of the prophets about who Israel would be, the glory, the the dominion, the sovereignty of the nation of Israel, none of that really seems to have happened in the post-exilic time. And so there began to be this new hope stirred that maybe God is still got something in store. Maybe God is yet to bring about this great new exodus. Yes, he's resettled us in the land, but maybe he's got a whole new exodus ready for us. Maybe he's going to bring about this great act of deliverance. He's going to deliver us from these empires that are oppressing us. He's going to make us again a great people. He's going to give us back our freedom. He's going to give us back our political independence. He's going to bring about this new exodus. Those were the hopes that were hanging in the air during the time of Jesus. Those were the hopes that were the the common talk on the street in the first century, that God is going to do this new thing. He's going to bring about this new exodus. It hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for God to intervene. And when it happens, it's going to be just like it was for our ancestors in Egypt. It's going to be this great act of deliverance. That's the environment into which Jesus came. That's the environment in which the Gospels were written. And when you open the New Testament and you start to read, particularly Matthew and Mark, the Exodus language just jumps off the page. If you read the Gospels in view of the Exodus, it will provide for you a deeper and richer backdrop to understanding the person and work of Jesus than anything else in all the Scripture. Because the Exodus story is embedded in who Jesus is. Is. Let me just show you a few of these connections from the Gospel of Matthew. Just flick over to Matthew. I'm just going to walk briefly through the first few chapters of Matthew. I want to show you some of these connections. And as we go, just listen for this Exodus language, these Exodus images. One of the first Old Testament quotes that Matthew uses to describe Jesus is in uh, Matthew 2.15, where he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's a promise that applied to Israel, where God says, out of Egypt I called my son Israel. Israel was the son of God. But now Matthew's taken that promise and he's plonked it on Jesus. And he's saying, this is the true son. This is the true Israel. And he's been called out of Egypt. He's referring to that time when Jesus was taken as a baby to Egypt, as a refugee child, because his parents were were being hunted by Herod. And then they returned, and Matthew says, this is, this is the coming out of Egypt. What, what are we supposed to hear in this? That there's a new exodus on the way. That there's a new exodus that's going to start, and it's going to center around this little baby Jesus. He's the bearer of a new exodus. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And Matthew introduces him with a quote from Isaiah. Matthew 3.3, A voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. That's Exodus language. Anyone else getting excited by this? That's Exodus language right there. Matthew's saying, guess what? John the Baptist is part of this whole story too. Originally, this preparing the way in the wilderness thing, this was about God going before his people, the pillar of fire, the cloud by night, preparing the way. Now Matthew says, here's John the Baptist. He's come as a forerunner of the Messiah, a forerunner of Jesus, and he's a forerunner of this big new exodus that's coming about. It's significant that the ministry of John takes place in the desert. What else happened in the desert? Israel's journey, right? John goes out into the wilderness, out of the city, into the wilderness. That location is significant. And then what's the next thing that happens in Matthew? Jesus comes to be baptized. 
If you're looking for Exodus imagery in the Gospels, you cannot go past the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes, he's already come out of Egypt, just like Israel. Now he's going out into the wilderness, just like Israel. And he's going through the waters of the Jordan. Not the Red Sea this time, but the Jordan. But the imagery is unmistakable. The connection is unmistakable. What's Jesus doing? It's like he's reenacting the passing of the Red Sea. He's reenacting the crossing through the Red Sea, through getting baptized in the Jordan River. You get the sense Jesus is not just going to bring about a new exodus. He's going through one. He's not just this new Moses type figure who's going to lead people through a new journey. He's actually undergoing a new exodus himself as our representative. That's the heart of it, that Jesus is our new exodus in person. He embodies our new exodus. And he does that by reenacting the exodus story himself. Comes out into the wilderness, goes through the waters. And then what's the next thing that happens in Matthew? Flick over to chapter 4. Straight after he's baptized, he's led by Satan where? Into the desert. Where he is for how long? 40 days. Come on. 40 days. Where's the number 40? Israel's 40 years. Here's Jesus, 40 days. Doesn't this get you out of bed in the morning? This is awesome stuff. 40, 40. Jesus is going in miniature form here. Jesus is going through the whole time of Israel's journey through the wilderness. He's reenacting it in 40 days, what Israel went through in 40 years. That's how you interpret the, the, the story of Jesus' temptations. Not just how to be a good Christian, how to resist the devil. What's happening here is Jesus is showing what it means to be the true son, the true Israel. Israel was tempted in the wilderness, tested in the wilderness, and they failed. They grumbled, they complained, they were untrusting, they were unfaithful. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and what happens? He's faithful. He's obedient. He resists the devil. He stands firm on the word and the promises of God. And he does it because we can't. That's the point. Not just that, well, we should try and do what Jesus does. The point is you can't. So we need to cling to Jesus because he's going through this whole Exodus thing for us as our representative and we get to be drawn into the journey through him and in him when our identity is in Christ. So Jesus goes through the wilderness time and no grumbling or complaining, but faithfulness to God. He comes through having defeated the devil, proven himself to be the true and faithful son of God that Israel could never be. And then what's the next thing that happens in Matthew? Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Number 12 is significant, 12 tribes of Israel. What's Jesus doing now? Drawing the whole community around himself, redefining the new Israel, the new people of God. It's going to be comprised of those who love and follow Jesus. And then what's the next thing that happens? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a mountain and begins to teach. What echoes, see if you're listening for them, they're all there, aren't they? What echoes does that have? Who else went up on a mountain and gave a kind of teaching? Moses. When Jesus goes up on the mountain and begins to give the Sermon on the Mount, what we're seeing is the new Moses going up onto the new Mount Sinai and giving the new Torah. Of God. He even references the old Torah. Said, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. He's bouncing off the old Exodus story all over the place and showing that he is the one bringing about this new Exodus as the Moses, the true Moses, and he's the one going through this new Exodus on behalf 
of all of us. The Exodus story is just shot through the pages of the gospel. And I encourage you when you're reading the gospels to listen for it. I'm not saying force it into the text, but I guarantee you the biblical authors had this in their mind. And why wouldn't they? It was such a foundational story for them in their history. Of course they understood Jesus as the true Moses and the new Israel going through the greater Exodus. The Exodus story gives us an incredible backdrop to understand the person and the work of Jesus. One more text from the Gospels, Luke chapter 9. This is the scene, there's so much that could be said about this, but this is the scene of Jesus' transfiguration, where he goes up on a different mountain, takes Peter, James, and John with him, and before their eyes, he's transfigured, he's transformed. So they see his glory, they see his majesty, they, tr- they see his true splendor as the Son of God, this radiant being before them as Jesus is transfigured. And then before him, on either side of him, at the Mount of Transfiguration, appear Moses and Elijah. Moses as representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. So there's the sense of the whole of the Old Testament being summed up here somehow. And just think for a minute, just as a side note here, just imagine what that experience was like for Moses. Not Jesus for a minute, but just here's Moses. You know, Moses was never allowed to set foot in the promised land. God said, I'll I'll take you up to Mount Nebo. You can look at it, but you're never going to get there. You're never going to set foot in the promised land. He led the whole journey. And then right at the boundary, he was unable to go in. And yet here he is in Luke chapter 9, 1,300 years later, standing in the promised land with Jesus. If you think God's slow in fulfilling his promises in your life, just take a lesson from Moses. 1,300 years. But here he is in the land of of promise, the land of Canaan, standing with the Messiah, finally able to get into the land. That in itself is just a wonderful story and journey. What a thrill it would have been for Moses. But look at Luke 9 and look at the subject of conversation that's going on between uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Verse 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. At Jerusalem. There's a note at the bottom of my Bible that says the word departure, guess what word it is? Exodus. Isn't this awesome? Jesus and Moses talking about the Exodus. And not just the Exodus that Moses led, but the Exodus that Jesus is led. They talked about his, Jesus, departure, his Exodus that he is about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. And this text, of course, is pointing to the cross. This is leading now to the death of Jesus, and it's at the cross where we see Jesus fulfill the great new exodus. It's incredibly important that our new exodus was fulfilled in the body of the Messiah, in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. We experience this wonderful new exodus in him. See, Israel expected that when God did this new exodus, it would be a political thing. It would be a national kind of resurgence that it would be about them at, a, at an earthly national level. But God knew that the exodus that Israel needed, the exodus that humanity needed, was far greater than political liberation. The exodus we needed was freedom from the one who holds the power of death. The exodus we needed is freedom from bondage to Satan. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Through the death of Jesus, God defeated his ultimate enemy, Satan himself, and cast him down. And in, in language reminiscent of the way that Pharaoh and his army were washed away by the sea. 
drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus, through his death, destroys the enemy of God, robs Satan of his power, disarms him, steals his land in a sense, steals all of his spoils, and frees his captives. And because Jesus has defeated Satan, we experience this incredible new exodus with him. We are liberated. We're freed from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to self, slavery ultimately to Satan. We're freed from it, freed from slavery to all these things that that entangle us in our lives, taken out of the dominion of darkness, and we are freed into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, this place where we find forgiveness, where we find peace with God, where we find that we become part of Abraham's family, we become part of the family of God, and we're given a whole new eternal future in relationship with God. That's the freedom that we get through Jesus. That's our exodus through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus, out of slavery to sin, into the freedom of new life. And you know what? You see it every time someone gets baptized. You remember a few weeks ago when seven people got baptized here? When, when we witness those acts, we're seeing a person unite themselves with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But even, even behind that, they're reenacting an exodus in their own life. They're going through the waters, just as Israel went through the waters, just as Jesus went through the waters. A person who gets baptized is going through the waters and they're saying, Jesus has rescued me from slavery. He's rescued me from death and oppression under the, under the evil one. And he's delivered me. And he's brought me into a spacious place. He's established me and he's set my feet on solid ground. And I'm forgiven and I'm free. When people get baptized, they are testifying to a new exodus experience in their lives. You excited? So the exodus is the background to the work of Jesus. It's the background to the Christian life as we go through a new exodus event of dying with Christ, being raised with Christ to new life. And one more thing. One more text before we close. All the way over in Revelation 15, the final book of the Bible, Revelation 15, and and this is a highly symbolic picture, but let me just give you the context. Here's a picture of when Christ finally returns one day, after the final judgment of all things, and Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and all those who belong to Jesus, all those who have been redeemed and had their lives transformed by him, we form this great community of people who now enjoy the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth in relationship with Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as I read this picture of that day, again, listen for the Exodus imagery here. Revelation 15 verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And you hear the Exodus image there? When the Bible comes to describe the the great final scene at the end of this age, it uses the language of Exodus. And Revelation is saying that when Christ returns, we're going to go through a final Exodus. We go through an Exodus now of the Christian life, 
But we're going to go through a final exodus one day when Christ brings us out of the brokenness of the present age, out of the sinfulness and the present age still kind of under the occupation of the evil one. He brings us out of all that into this new creation where Satan is completely destroyed, utterly eradicated. Sin is not even possible. All brokenness removed. No more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no mourning. The old order of things has passed away. Everything is made new. That's the new promised land. That new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It's like the new Canaan. It's like the new promised land. And we're heading towards that even now. That's the, that's the promise that's waiting for us. And on that day, when we stand before God in the new creation, our response will be what it was for the Israelites standing on the far shore of the Red Sea. What's the first thing they did when the waters closed back over and they saw they were free? They worshipped. They sung a song. You can read it in, in the book of Exodus. The guys sing a song, then the women sing a song. It's just one big sing song. It's a big praise event. And why shouldn't they cry out in praise to the God, to Yahweh, who has rescued them dramatically by his outstretched hand? And the, the scripture is showing us that one day it will be like that for us. That in a sense, we'll stand on the far side of the Red Sea and we'll see just waters of calm where we've experienced troubled waters in our lives. We've experienced waters of chaos and turbulence in our lives and in our world, but one day those waters are going to be like a sea of glass. And God's shalom will finally be established fully, complete. Doesn't it pull your heart forward? Finally, God's shalom will cover the whole earth and we will worship. We will praise the God of the Exodus. And one particular phrase in that song I think is so pertinent. In verse 4, where it says, All nations will come and worship before you. You know, the first exodus was an event just for Israel. It was uniquely, specifically God's way of redeeming his people, Israel, and stamping his chosenness on them. But the exodus was always, always, always for the sake of the world. It was always part of a much greater plan that through Israel, blessing would extend, shalom would extend, God's loving rule would extend to all nations. So it's so appropriate that you get to the end of the Bible and the great final exodus that Jesus will one day bring about will be for all nations. It'll be all nations coming and worshiping God because there will be a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Beautiful bookends to Scripture, right? The exodus and the new great perfect exodus at the end of the age. And I can imagine, you know, Abraham's going to be part of that crowd standing there one day in the new creation on the far side of the Red Sea, as it were. Abraham will be there along with us. And I can imagine God turning to Abraham and saying, you see, Abraham, I fulfilled my promise. I promised you that you would have children, you would have a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. And here they are, this great community of those who have been redeemed. Abraham, I promised you land, and now I'm giving you the whole earth. You inherit the whole earth as a gift. And Abraham, I promised you that through you, all nations would one day be blessed. And here it is, a people from every tribe, every tongue, Every nation worshipping around the throne of God. You see, Abraham, I am the covenant-keeping God. 
God is the God who remembers. That's the story of Exodus, that God fulfills his promises to his people Israel and to us. St. Augustine once said, we are an Easter people and hallelujah is our song. And I think we could adapt Augustine's quote to say, we are an Exodus people and hallelujah is our song. We're a people who have been through a great new exodus from death to life, nothing less. We've been through the waters and we experience life now in the promised land, but we're still en route to the final promised land. We're still a pilgrim people. We're still going through the wilderness of the present life. And one day, God is going to lead us into the final land of promise. We can trust him with that. If he was faithful in the exodus, if he was faithful through Jesus, which he was, Will he not be faithful in our lives now? And will he not be faithful one day to lead us home, to lead us into the new heavens and the new earth where we'll worship him for all eternity? I pray that we're blessed by this book of Exodus, that we're transformed by the same power of God that led his people out of Egypt and into freedom. The same power of the same miracle-working God is at work in our lives, in our church, and in our world today. Amen? We're going to get stuck in next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of the Exodus. God, it's, it's amazing to think that even as we talk to you now, you're the God who parted the waters. You're the God who led your people through on dry ground. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Jesus. And God, we thank you that you have redeemed our lives. We thank you that just as Israel was able to look back to the Exodus, we can look back to the cross and see there that you are for us, that you've chosen us, that you are faithful, and that your power is so much greater than anything we face in our lives or anything we see the evil one doing in our world. So God, I pray you'd prepare us for this series, prepare our hearts for this series. Lord God, show us again your power. Show us again your love. Lift our eyes again from the earthly things, the distracting things, the small visions that we've got of you, the way that we've made you in our image. God, lift us up, break all of that down and give us a new view of you, a fresh vision of you as the Exodus God and may we be your faithful Exodus people in Christ Jesus, your son. It's for his name and his glory that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.